This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 52, Messages from Earth. All right, it's Messages from Earth, a mildly consequential episode of Babylon 5. And for this one, we've brought in our correspondent in the field, uh, reporting to us live from Syria Planum on the plains of Mars. It's Andy Anatko. <laughs> Hello. Andy, welcome Hello, back Andy. to the audio guide. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me back. It's, it's, it's nice to it's, it's nice to like have an excuse to dip back into Babylon 5 and basically lose at least two and a half days as I have to <laughs> one, one episode is just not enough because it reminds you of other episodes that you wish you had seen more recently. You can't eat just one. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, we invited you on way back for episode seven, which was Mind War, which was uh, an entirely different kind of episode. Uh, Andy, can you put yourself back in your mindset of uh, how it felt back when Babylon 5 was first airing? Um, how it felt to be watching this show when we got to this point, you know, early third season. Um, you know, what had changed for you as a fan of the show between those sort of early days and where we were right then in the third season? Uh, for me, Babylon 5 really started to click uh, around season two. I think season two was where I really became a regular viewer. I think in the, uh, in the previous episode we did together, I might have spoken about how I saw the, I saw the pilot and I, I fell for the, for the trap that uh, J. Michael Straczynski set for everybody, which is I'm going to make the pilot into the most conventional, boring, familiar sort of science fiction thing where I'm going to put in every single familiar stereotype that you see in a ripoff of Star Trek. And then, boy, <laughs> eight or nine episodes in when it turns out that, no, 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 I was just leading you on. Boy, are people going to be excited. Unfortunately for me, it was it was for me uh oh okay so this really is just like star trek okay i don't need to see this but it was people who were recommending this and just really excited about it that got me back in and season two really got me uh when when things were really starting to cook uh started to get me uh season three was when it really really set the hook because uh, so many of my favorite episodes uh, are in, uh, preceded this one we're, we're going to be talking about. Uh, Passing through Gesthenemy is probably uh, probably my favorite non-wham episode of uh, of Babylon Five. The fact that they would go do an entire episode just talking about the relevance of religion. In the, in, in the in the far future, as opposed to saying, "Oh no, we are Starfleet. We've 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 transcended such primitive things <laughs> such as belief in the so-called God." It's no, there are still religious orders. They still have very important things, and there are still uh, people that can, it, 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 you have a, a science fiction show that can talk about these really spiritual things, such as like I, uh, it's in my nature to want to, uh, to make mistakes, but to want to atone for my sins. But how can I be absolved of my sins if I don't know what those sins were? And this is the, the story of the, the, the murderer who is sentenced to death of personality. So they basically wipe his mind and sort of <laughs> reformat and redo a clean install. Uh, and he becomes a monk who wants <laughs> to serve. And, and, but it's, it was just one of those really powerful things that makes you glad that you were recorded it even on VHS because as soon as you rewind that cassette you want to watch it all over again. Uh, dust to Dust was another one of those things where uh, I pro the the scene in which Jakar has his 
has his, uh, again, a very spiritual moment of breakthrough that, look, you're filled with anger and it's because people are distracting you from your true purpose. You need to start to focus on what the really important things of this war are going to be. And you have to focus on what your role is as a leader of these people. Do you want to lead them into battle or do you want to lead them into greatness? And, uh, I was it was it was like the fourth or fifth viewing before I could see that uh, I've forgotten the name of uh, I think it was Jaquan that he has the vision of that. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think some of the adhesive under Jaquan's mask was starting to go because you could <laughs> see like the the rubber underneath his nose was starting to like bow in and out as he was breathing. And but but it was like third third or fourth viewing before I even noticed that <laughs> uh, and. <laughs> and just all these really wonderful ones that weren't just oh wow we're finally after three after the, the, the messages from from Earth is the episode where we're starting to talk we're we're starting to really figure out what the larger story is and that was deeply satisfying after two and a half seasons but preceded by so many of these tiny little episodes these tiny little scenes that you just want to view over and over again so that's I was really really the, the pump was very well much primed for me to just be co totally committed. J. Michael Straczynski, I totally trust you. No matter what you're doing, I'm going to be watching and I'm going to be completely involved and committed. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a you gave a little tell uh, when you described uh, passing through Gethsemane as not a wham episode, and that is that is the language that was used online as the show was going out when JMS was talking on Usenet and CompuServe and remember CompuServe? Uh, were you part of the were you part of the online fandom uh, when the show was uh, being first released? Yeah, I think I was uh, I was definitely involved in the uh, involved in that an active reader and sometimes participant in the the uh, Usenet news group. Um, I think I was also uh, uh, my close personal friend Jason Snell was also <laughs> was also writing the the Lurkers Guide, uh, but I wasn't involved in that. But I was I think there are a couple of questions that J. Michael Straczynski asked uh, answered from me, but I, w I wouldn't say that I was an active creator. I was more of a active follower of this sort of thing. But you were aware enough to know that this was a season that JMS set out to write all by his all by his lonesome. Um, that's a, and that's something that unless you were the sort of uh, TV watcher who obsessively uh, pays attention to the opening credits, it just sort of fly <laughs> by you. You mean you mean like in my house where after the opening credits we have to rewind it every time so Stephen can watch what the people are doing instead of what the credits are saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's Maybe. just become a thing that we do every time now. Maybe. Uh, but how much did it matter to you, Andy, that uh, this was a season that JMS was writing all by himself? Not that much, only because it seemed to me as though he was, uh, maybe it was because I was reading the, the Usenet groups, I knew that how involved he was in every single episode, uh, and that it almost seemed as though there was something special when JMS did not write uh, an episode. So... Uh, it certainly, it, it, it certainly uh, uh, was a tell that this was going to be a big season, but it didn't really affect me all that much. Well, let's get into messages from Earth. Uh, we will, of course, uh, hold our spoilers and talks about the any future implications of this episode for after the jump gate later on. But if this is your first episode of Babylon Five, hello. 
Previously on Babylon 5, EarthGov Vice President Clark assassinated the president, and there's at least a faction of EarthGov, including some members of the telepathic psy that are working with a dangerous alien race called the Shadows. Babylon 5 Captain John Sheridan has been working with fellow officers who suspected a conspiracy. Little did he know that other aliens, led in part by Membari Ambassador DeLynn and an army of rangers, have been preparing for a war with these shadows. There have been more sightings of these ships. Evidence of the assassination plot is beginning to leak. It's a delicate time. In this episode, the rangers bring an archaeologist to Babylon 5 who witnessed the excavation of a shadow ship on Mars seven years before. Another one's been found on Ganymede. And EarthGov tried to press her into service to help retrieve it. Sheridan and Delenn decide to sneak away and take the White Star to Ganymede in an attempt to destroy the Shadow Ship on the ground. They get there too late. The ship awakens and goes on an insane rampage. Sheridan tricks the vessel into following it into the lower reaches of Jupiter's atmosphere, where it's crushed. All's well that ends well. Um, hold on. It seems that an Earth Force cruiser has caught up to them. Sheridan refuses to fight them to escape, but Delenn convinces them to jump to hyperspace from the edges of Jupiter's atmosphere. So all's well that ends well. Um, hold on. It seems that the Nightwatch secret police have noticed that Sheridan and his security chief have been mysteriously away from the station during this crisis, and that sure smells like disloyalty to Earth. And, if that wasn't enough... EarthGov is blaming a mysterious alien incursion for the destruction of the Ganymede base, and President Clark uses that as a pretext to declare martial law. Fade to black, ominous, yeah, uh, moderately moderately consequential episode. Uh, Could we call this a wham episode, folks? (laughs) This is a crap hits the fan episode. (laughs) oh so before we delve into the uh, specifics let's uh just overall impressions of this episode Uh, leading question because this tells you exactly where i'm I'm holding my cards in terms of direction writing and acting are there any bloody flaws in this episode because right now i can't find any (laughs) (laughs) i can i can give you one but it's not one that i noticed uh in watching with Steven, who I will I will say right now, so you don't defriend him, Chip. Uh, Steven loved this. He thought it was fantastic. Uh, the only thing that he could find, you know, because I always quiz him about the, the episode afterwards. The only thing that he could find that he could even kind of sideways frown a little bit about was just the idea that um, when they get to Ganymede, Delenn springs the fact that uh, that they need a human to merge with the ship or a living being to merge with the the shadow ship in order to get it uh, to get it activated he just thought that that sort of seemed like the kind of information that maybe she should have told them ahead of time that would have been maybe an important thing to know and just springing him on springing it on him like that at the last minute was was just sort of a device for extra dramatic tension in the moment but that was that was the only thing the only flaw it's the flaw in the persian rug if you will I can sort of see his point, but I also kind of feel like we, we've seen how Delenn tends to give out information sort of, you know, on a need to know basis. And it feels like this is something that it didn't occur to her that they might need to know because they were expecting to find a ship still on the ground, still being excavated, um, that they could just like go pew, pew, pew from from space and <laughs> knock it out. 
It is sort of off-putting, though, that uh, the, the idea that Delenn might have some information that she might hold back from Sharon. And Andy, what did you think of this episode? Uh, loved it. The, the only the only nitpick I had is just a, a little sort of uh, writing tick that JMS has, which causes people to have to really for, out of out of the blue tell a really really long backstory ish sort of thing for no particular reason. <laughs> like, well, uh, well, hey, hey, Captain Sheridan, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just washing my socks. You know that when I was in training, I had a <laughs> captain who would always tell me that. And this one is the you know when I was ever nervous, my dad would always put hose rain over the <laughs> over the top. Of the, of the building so I could hear rain before for a big exam and it's one or two of these things over the course of a season is fine later then it seems like okay what at what point did they tell you that oh uh J- jms we're we're 48 seconds short we need to f- we need to fill vamp a little bit but but i'm talking about one of my Andy? my favorite possibly possibly my very favorite scene in all of babylon 5 yeah. Afterwards, I'm, I told Stephen that like that that scene for some reason it just stands out to me. That is the most human moment of Captain Sheridan ever, and it just I've always always remembered that the the interaction between the two of them, the way it's mm-hmm. directed, the way it's acted, man, and Box Lightner's performance there just sold it. I was I was right there with him. I wanted it to rain. Yeah, uh, was, I'm, I'm the same moment. way because yeah, because it gives us a moment for. Delenn and Sheridan, you know, have a few moments of peace. There's no crisis. There's nothing going on. So they can talk a minute, bond a minute. And the other thing that struck me about that episode was letting us see just, you know, we haven't heard a whole lot about Sheridan and his parents, just bits and pieces. But this gives us a chance for him to show just how much he values them. I mean, the way his face lights up the first time he mentions my dad um, mm-hmm. is just a tiny little thing of beauty to behold. So yeah. I'm, I'm not going to fuss. Exactly. That's why I call it nitpicking. It's if it if it wasn't something that I was already just sort of, uh, <laughs> I was I was already just sort of okay. Here we go again. <laughs> right. So it, it's, it, it, it was it was legitimately a really tender moment. Babylon Five can be uneven in in all aspects. Uh, you know the the scripting from episode to episode the directorial competence um the acting it seems like an uh, this seems like a series where uh, a workmanlike director that may not get the best performances from all of the cast but i as we've been going through this rewatch i can't think of a better acted episode of babylon 5 to this point I'm racking my brain. I may no, disagree I with you down the road, but you know, at the moment, it's certainly up there. Um, even our smaller characters, our bit parts, the Nightwatch people, you know, you still have um, you know strong, solid performances from from people that we expect to just come in and deliver clunky lines and leave. Um, every scene I can think of in this episode works, flows pretty well. You know, I'm not even I was even kind of impressed by the um, the stunt fighting at the beginning looked like it was much sharper than some of the stuff we've seen earlier. Yeah, it's yeah. it's, it's kind of it's kind of silly, you know, at the end, the the, the conveniently placed uh, bars that uh, Marcus knocks down with his Minbari fighting pike. You know, it's really, really helpful that they were there. It's 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 a silly fight, but it's a very skillfully awareness. choreographed one. <laughs> and yeah, and on the acting side, I, I noticed that as well. It just it seemed like everybody was at the top of their game. When we get the uh, <clears throat> the scene in the conference room where the the refugee doctor is ex- explaining what she had seen 
And the fact that Earth is now sort of involved with the shadows, at least to some extent. And after she leaves, the feeling of sheer deflation in that conference room is palpable. Every single actor in that scene completely sells it. Like they just, they don't even know what to do. Sheridan's not saying anything. And the way that it's written, yes, the script is great, but but the actors stepped up and knocked it out of the park, I thought, in that scene. One of the standout performances, I think, is one of the smaller parts in the episode, and that's Bill Moomy as Lanier. I love him on the bridge of the White Star when he shakes oh, yes. his head in exasperation <laughs> and uh, and says, if I would if, give you, if I had any more to give you, I would tell <laughs> <laughs> if I was holding anything back, yeah. he he just he just kills it. Exasperation, determination, astonishment, and 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 he's he's not mugging for the camera anyway. It's it's perfectly it's perfectly pitched. He doesn't detract. He contributes in a very telling but very you know subtle way. Lanier, I think that JMS was always saying he is in over his head. Every single time he is not he is not warrior cast. He is definitely a religious type. He could be a, a great religious person, but when you put him in the position of being in a non spiritual, very worldly place, he will do very well. But you will see his breaking points, and this is where uh, a someone who is more warrior like would just simply understand the communication and not have to snap back. <laughs> do you do you do you really think that I'm just going to say you know what I think I'll leave twenty percent just in case he asks for more later on. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's you, you say yes sir and that's it <laughs> hit the button and you, and you know talking about just the the you know the side characters i and the the one line folks in the background <clears throat> yeah even even those folks were good i actually noticed the uh the scene in night watch where they're being told that that you know stuff's getting real and people are going to be starting to be arrested soon the uh the the black woman in the back who asks what can we do to help mm-hmm. that's actually that is an actress who um let's see what is her name i've got it here uh she played francie on alias that's um hmm. yeah I cannot find her name now because here we go. Marion Dungy, which like I recognized her right away. I was like, where do I know her from? Where do I know her from? She's she's a main character in something. And sure enough. Yeah. So they managed to actually get people who can who can do good things, even for the one liners. And in the later in the scene, when uh, the Night Watch commander or whatever his rank is, is saying that Night Watch is assumed to be loyal. Everybody else. Uh, it's need to know. And she speaks up in the background and said, in that case, can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. And then you get the rack focus or whatever you call it. uh, And the focus shifts from him to her after she has spoken. Mike Vihar. (laughs) Mike, what a good director. Yeah, there were there were coos and oohs and ahs uh, coming from from next to me. Actually, this was one where Stephen likes to guess if it's a Mike Vehar episode before the before the opening credits. And this <laughs> time, like I could tell he wasn't quite sure. And afterwards, he explained to me it's because there was a really nice bit of handheld at the beginning. And Mike Vehar doesn't do a lot of handheld in his episodes. So when uh, at first he was like, oh, I think this is oh, wait, maybe not. And then, of course, we get to the opening credits and he's like, ha, I knew it. He was laughing and very, very excited about that because he just kept seeing, you know, up, up, you start the scene at the left side of C&C, you pan all the way across everything that's happening to land on the character who's going to do the talking at the far right side of the screen. It's just, there's There are so many interesting touches like that that are wonderful. So it's not just that he's getting great performances from the actors. He is also getting great performances from the camera. 
I was just I would overall agree with that. I can the I can think of the only thing that would fall under the directorial side that really irked me was on the White Star and they're dealing with the Agamemnon and the camera is following Delenn. I think if I remember correctly, showing she's trying to think a way out of the situation mm-hmm, uh, because mm-hmm. Sheridan's floundering and she goes behind something and like, you know, w- Mira Furlan's face is showing all this emotion, all this torn indecision, all this, you know, furiously thinking, what can she do? And then all of a sudden something blocks her until she goes past it. And that was the only thing that irked me. It was like, w- why is that thing in the way? That was the <laughs> only thing that bothered me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the the other Mike Vehar touch that, that came up here and that I've noticed him do before, and Stephen pointed this out too, was he, he's, he does a really nice job of matching exposition to the action using voiceover. So you're not yes. getting a big exposition dump from a character just coming out of their mouth. So we had a yes. uh, voiceover while Garibaldi is explaining, uh, is, is explaining some of the background of what he saw on Mars, or at least who he found while there, you know, we get the slow-mo walk down the corridor. And then mm-hmm. later on, we get even more voiceover with a little bit of drums, which I thought was kind of funny because <laughs> in the last episode, we had comedy drums when Ivanova was marching right. to confront Marcus. And this time we have, you know, oh, dramatic yeah. drums. Ominous military war is yeah, coming Ivanova, type drums. Yep. Yes. It's yeah. good stuff. Um, real quick. Let's, uh, let's go through some of the specific, some more of the specifics of this episode. Um, I like that we got an early reference to the fact that the medical records from Hunter Prey, Hunter comma yes. Prey, where the doctor proved that uh, Vice President Clark didn't have the flu when he um, skipped out on flying on Earth Force One. Uh, we get that uh, referenced in the ISN news, which pays off for me the fact that we had to watch Hunter, comma, pray about 570 <laughs> times in reruns during season two back in 1994. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that. But um, the there's the, also a callback to Matters of Honor. Dylan mentions how um, Earth officials have been going around visiting all the aliens, trying to find out more information about the, the ship that was uh, seen on Keffer's video. Right. But then we find out that Garibaldi's actually seen one of these things before. And I wanted to uh, check in with y'all on that. You know, so we find out through Dr. Kirkish's story corroborated by Garibaldi that shadow vessels were seen on and over Mars seven years ago. So that would be uh, four years before the start of uh, the Babylon 5 series. Did that sort of come out of left field? That Garibaldi's actually seen a shadow vessel? Yeah, you know, it it did for me simply because this is not the first time that we have seen a shadow vessel. You know, Kepler's video has been out there for a while. And, I mean, if Garibaldi mentioned it to somebody else on the show, he didn't mention it in front of the camera. So the fact that he hasn't spoken up before now seems just a little bit like, oh, maybe we just, you know, just thought of this at, at this point. Or why? I just, there, there was no good enough reason for Garibaldi not to have told us about that before, I thought. I, I don't completely agree with that. Um, and this just may be the influence. And I think, Chip, you're going to go into it in a minute, the tie-in with the comic book series at the time but um within the show um it makes a little bit of sense to me garibaldi tends to be the type who is not going to venture something outside of his professional expertise if he doesn't have corroboration 
And I, I just, think if if he had, you know, before gone to Sheridan after Keffer's thing, um, after the video of uh, Keffer's video goes live and says, yeah, I saw one of these on Mars seven years ago. You know, he would Sheridan would need to be convinced. And I disagree. He, and he has. But, but now he, well, but now he has a, a completely separate witness, someone, you know, that he has not teamed up with. There is no collusion here. And now he's able to back up somebody else's story. So for me, it feels sort of in character. If this was any other thing, I might agree with you. But this is like, this is clearly a big deal. This is something that they have, that they they brought him in on. And they, they don't have a whole lot of information. And they've, they've just sort of been floundering and trying to figure out where they're going with things. So the fact that he actually has a piece of information, whether it's corroborated or not, like if he would have brought it to the group, they've got rangers now whose job is to go out and find information. And, and admittedly, he does use the rangers. So he just does it, you know, sort of behind everybody's backs. I just... I, I am I am completely baffled as to why he doesn't say anything because that that reason does not seem strong enough for somebody like Garibaldi who who I think remember that very first episode where we had the war council and Sheridan you know says to everybody you know not sharing enough information can get you killed that's not a thing that we're going to do here and I was so excited and so happy because I was like yay we're not going to have that stupid soap opera thing where characters <laughs> characters don't tell each other information just because of dramatic reasons well I think that's exactly what we've gotten here. Yeah, I I I got I got to say that uh, without him presenting the actual Psychor badge, I could have written this off as he regards his time on Mars as sort of his lost weekend, where mm-hmm. he not he, it's not like he will not not remember things from that time, but this is the sort of stuff that he kind of suppresses and he doesn't. It's not really on his mind at all times. The fact that, however, he held on to the Psychor badge means that he thought it was significant at the time. Every time that he look how, look how small the crew quarters are. Every time he does a house cleaning and he decides to <laughs> I keep give away throw out throw out, he decided <laughs> to keep that. Yeah, then that was definitely something that was on his mind and something that really should have come up a lot earlier before that. Or, or maybe to, if if we're going to be charitable towards him, maybe he he has a overarching distrust of Psychor and he kept it because, oh, I know they're involved in something. I don't know what it is, but mm-hmm. I know they're involved in something. And it was only during the events of this episode that he that all the pieces fell together that, oh, so I just got the 40% of the information that I needed to know in order to figure out what was going on after all these years. Well, let's throw, let, let's throw a little wrinkle into this. As Shannon mentioned, comic book. Uh, did you know loyal listeners that uh there was actually a star wars style expanded universe for babylon 5 um dc comics published a babylon 5 comic book and uh it was sort of an up and down relationship between jms and dc on this uh some some issues fit in better than others but about six months before messages from earth aired there was a four-part run of the comic uh, called Shadows Past and Present, in which Garibaldi and Keffer are shot down during uh, an adventure that takes place before the coming of Shadows. And in the course of that uh, adventure, Garibaldi tells Keffer the story of when something similar to this happened back on Mars. And so he told Keffer and he didn't tell everybody else? Hang on. Wow. Hang on. I am I am spinning a tail here. I'm spinning a tail. He, as he's was building Garibaldi. a pyramid. We're setting the base of the pyramid. <laughs> now we're got in the second level of the pyramid. 
<laughs> so basically, what what happened what happened on Mars, according according to uh, Garibaldi's story, is that Garibaldi was as is depicted as as is depicted in this episode. Garibaldi was running a shuttle service on Mars. He was in the bottle, um, and. Sinclair shows up with uh, a couple of other Earth Force guys. He's been stuck on keep him busy and out of the way missions because, Earth, you know, the Earth Force brass really doesn't like him. And he is investigating reports of alien uh, collaboration. Uh, they take a shuttle towards some reported activity out near Syria Planum. Their shuttle goes down. Sinclair and Garibaldi have a confrontation over uh, Garibaldi's drinking uh, during the crisis, and they discover the shadow ship excavation, and they discover a Psycor presence on uh, on Syria Planum. They manage to escape. By the time they return, uh, they uh, everything is wiped out, just as uh, Garibaldi describes in this episode. And when Garibaldi and Keffer are rescued in the comic. Garibaldi tells Sheridan everything, including the oh. including including the Psycor badge. Uh, so uh, when he, I see. okay. So if you have read the comic, you know you're sort of getting this recap uh, that in the episode, and Garibaldi is arguably, you know, he's showing he's showing the Psycor badge to Sheridan for the second time and everybody else around the table for the first time. Is that too much to ask of somebody watching a television show that, oh, by the way, there's this comic over here that was published six months ago in which Garibaldi does exactly what you were frustrated about, Erica? Yes, it's too much I do think that is too much, yes. (laughs) But I mean, but only, it's only too much if that's a major plot point. In this case, it's just something that's going to make me side-eye the character and think that the writing is a little bit iffy. That's fine. Um, but if it was if it was a major plot point or something, then yes, I would say that is too much. Right, Andy, were you reading the comic at the time? No, it's uh, I, I've always had the same attitude regarding expanded universe stuff. I've always thought that the the thing, whether it's the Star Wars movies or the Babylon Five TV show, was canon, and everything around it is fanfic, a- entertaining. But I don't need to I don't need to contaminate my thinking with it. The the fact that it's not being written by JMS was enough to make me think that okay, I don't really need it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is also the comic run that we talked about a little bit before on this show that uh, included a last page reveal of Talia Winters uh, being mind programmed by the uh, Psycor. And that was released just before D- Divided Loyalties actually aired. So JMS, in his efforts to integrate his exp- expanded universe, really screwed up a big a surprising plot point. Yeah. yeah, the way I kind of look at that stuff is that it's, you know, it's nice supplemental material. And I will, you know, I will consider it canon as far as the story goes. But I, I really don't think that it's the kind of thing that should be required in order to understand the story. I think that that if you have a television show, unless you're setting out from day one to try to have some sort of integrated experience, I think that the show should be able to, to fill in everything that you need. And it's not really fair to ask viewers who, you know, maybe can't afford comic books or external materials like that to have to go and pick up that stuff uh, suddenly in the middle of the third season in order to, to keep up with things. But this is, like I said, this is a minor enough thing that I'm, I'm willing to just kind of ignore it and it's fine. Yeah, but it gave me a chance to punch 
pontificate about a comic book, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and at least it wasn't a, hey, C-3PO, what's with the red arm? Oh, there's such a long story about the red arm, but we won't talk about that right now. Like, at least it's, it's okay to paint the arm red, or uh, if, if there's a re- weird reason why someone has Luke Skywalker's lightsaber, they shouldn't. That's fine. Just don't hang a lantern on it and make me think, well, now you have to tell me what the story is. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. Oh, and one one last comic book related point. It really frustrates me that there is no legitimate source uh, for getting the comic books these days. There is no digital. There is no digital deal between Warner Brothers or DC or whoever. Uh, the comics are not out there unless you go to dark places in the internet. Yeah, another reason why I think it's it's important that they not be required reading. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, some other bits uh, and bobs in this episode. How about that early interlude with uh, Garibaldi and Jakar in the cell block? I'm liking this. This is sort of new style Jakar. He he amuses me. It's you know it's it's just it's so different. He that that transformative episode he had in, in Dust to Dust really seems to have have stuck. Um, you know, I mean, and who knows? Maybe once he gets out of jail, that'll be completely different, and and he he won't stick to this sort of. It's happy go lucky is definitely not the right phrase, but he's just seems Serene. so much more. He, yeah, he's at peace with him himself yeah. and what he's doing, and and now he's writing some sort of some sort of book or screed, and it's just, uh, yeah, it is it is kind of delightful, and I have to give huge props to either Mike Vehar or whoever was doing the lighting in that in that little scene because the harsh shadow of his bunk and the way he just you know he kind of leans out of it at the beginning, and then you know then he's back. laughing with Garibaldi, and then Garibaldi asks him at the end, "Can I read it?" And he just he leans back into the dark, and says, you know when it's done, it's like, ooh, yeah. it gave me. Shit. I know that too yeah um yeah i i love this scene uh, this bit again you know seeing that you know jakar for whatever combination of reasons the um you know as you said the um revelation uh from his uh experience in dust to dust uh the fact that for the first time in a very long time he is isolated he does not have to he is not in a position to do anything about managing the Narns on the station. He's and therefore he's not going to worry about it. It's like just all of these other things that were tearing him in so many different directions in the first couple of seasons at the moment are gone. And he is able to think and to meditate, as he said, and consider and write down what he thinks and he has not had the space to do this yet and now it's almost like this imprisonment is a bit of a gift to him following on the heels of um of his revelation um and i i have to admit i also love the little bit about suppose about how the book of jaquan cannot be read in anything of the mother tongue um you know i'm, I'm wondering how many religious conflicts that solves that you it, it, there's only one version and you have to learn <laughs> the language to read the version Instead of debating Aramaic versus Greek versus Latin versus everything. At the time I first watched this back in the day, my friend who got me into Babylon 5 was gobsmacked by the Garibaldi Jakar scene because he saw parallels between, you know, Jakar talks about, I'm writing it all down, the war, where we went astray, what we need to do to, and he's going, Oh my God! He's writing Mein Kampf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is kind of an um, this is kind of an ominous scene, especially when he drifts back into the shadows. So I think it 
on the one hand, yeah, you know, laughing over the petition, over the uh, singing and all that other stuff. But, uh, you know, there is a little, there is still something a little dangerous seeming within Jakar. Just just huh. worth pointing out. Well, that's that's mm-hmm. not the impression that I got. I, I recall that I didn't think, I wasn't thinking Mein Kampf. I really was thinking about a religious text to uh, make him really embrace his role Again, as a leader, not just as a military leader. Yeah. Uh, moving along, uh, you know, I love the pacing of this episode. Uh, the you know, it, it's it's a four day trip uh, to and from Jupiter, and uh, but the episode just doesn't drag. Um, and it gives us time for character moments. Um, you know, I love the I love that we talked about the Sheridan and Dylan scene. Uh, Marcus and Ivanova, they're back and forth. Uh, you know, <laughs> she started off um, the previous episode, Exogenesis, uh, complaining about not fully trusting Marcus. He's not part of the hierarchy and things like that. And this episode just you know, dives right into this with their confrontation in uh, Sheridan's office to uh, the the high school poster visual aids project at the end. <laughs> um, delightful. Delightful. Claudia Christian has a fantastic smile. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, I love that scene of their their confrontation because it just, it really helped to cement who these characters are. I mean, I guess we know who Ivano is by this point, but Marcus is still fairly new. And the way that those two play off of each other really, in that scene, give you a great idea of, of who they are as people. Because you have Ivanova doing her thing where she gets upset about something and sort of rants and, and raves and stuff. And then you have Marcus on the other side, who is, he's not taking the bait. He is just, he's standing there calmly and asking her, you know, cogent questions and trying to get to the heart of why she is she is upset. And yes, we know that he has a crush on her, but at the same time, it's clearly just a part of his personality that he's the kind of person who's going to assess a situation very carefully and see if he can get to the root of it and not, you know, not go crazy when he doesn't need to. I also love that uh, little aside that he gives when uh, she says that you, you knew he'd go out there. And Marcus says, I rather thought he'd send me. Funny that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's disappointed he's not out on the front lines. Yeah, that's what he feels his role is. And this one time, it, it didn't happen the way he expected. I mean, he's not feeling trusted by Ivanova or Sheridan at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he is still the new kid on the block. Yeah, but he, he's the one who's got the, 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 the cape and the stick. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's been trained for this sort of stuff. That's true. He actually, at the very beginning, uh, in the cold open before the opening credit sequence, uh, when he's when he's fighting, uh, Stephen just turned to me and he's like, "Aragorn." Oh yes, uh, Andy, my my husband calls Marcus Aragorn because it amuses <laughs> him to do so. Uh, so he said, "Aragorn leads a fascinating life. He's kind of like Robin Hood in space." But he pointed out, he's like, "You know what? That scene." He said, "It feels like it's a completely different show. We've got one show that's got space spaceships and guns and lasers and stuff, and the other one has quarterstaffs and ninjas." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he does. He is he is trained for that interesting life. And uh, the other uh, sort of C plot of the story um, is uh, Zach dealing with the Night Watch, and um, yeah, poor poor Zach Allen. <laughs> the noose just gets tighter. All he yeah. wanted was a few extra bucks in his pay packet. <laughs> <laughs> he 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 thought all I got to do is put on all they're asking me to do is put on this little this this little armband, 
show up to a couple of meetings and it's like free money. Why wouldn't I do this? Oh, he just he looks like a sad little puppy in a couple of those scenes when he's thinking about how how the chief would have brought him in on whatever this is, you know, weeks ago if he hadn't joined the Night Watch. And I mean, it's it's almost the speech of a petulant child a little bit right there. Like just he just he's he's doubting himself. He's doubting the chief. He's doubting everything. I just I feel very bad for Zach right now. And, and it's a great <laughs> performance by Jeff Conway in this episode, in oh, an yeah. episode full of great performances. Yep. Uh, it's. Do you think that everyone got the got the uh, got the memo that this is a really important episode, and that it's, it's not as though anybody would give uh, you know a, a half bottomed performance just from a day to day basis? But is there something about an episode like this that makes everyone say, "Okay, you know what? I am going to go to bed at six p.m. the night before, and I'm going <laughs> to go for a two mile run before I even get into the car to go to the studio because this is going to be it. This is going this is going to be on the show reel. This is going to be on my Emmy reel." <laughs> <laughs> Possibly, I don't know. Everyone really did seem like they were firing on all uh, on all eight cylinders in this one. As again, it's also you see, but there's there's sometimes where you you see some people who are resigned to the fact that okay, this is another scene in which I say, but sir, you can't do that. <laughs> and I, I'm here to nod while they lay down a whole bunch of exposition, even though I'm I'm being my, my name and my character are in the opening credits. It's not. There's. There's. It seems as though they're there to do their job well, but not to do one of the best episodes of the entire season. I don't. I don't. I don't have a. I don't have a response to that. It's just flawless victory. <laughs> <laughs> My logic was piercing and penetrating, and it brooked no to- no argument. Excellent. Oh we can end goodness. The show now. Um, let's do a quick lightning round before we go into spoiler space of other uh, hi- highlights of this episode. Uh, Every time I watch the Jupiter attack sequence and uh, when the uh, shadow vessel gets to the bottom of the gravity well, can't get back up and crumples, every time I watch this episode, I cannot help but sort of slowly clench my fist like uh, I'm, 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 I'm crushing your crab ship. I'm crushing your crab ship. Um, I, I, I love it. I, I, I love that. Um, uh, I like the... I like the way that the Minbari stands at attention as Sheridan heads out of the um, out of the command staff to out of the, out, out of the bridge to try to get some shut eye. I love the way Delin takes charge when Sheridan falters. Um, any other little bits that y'all love? Well, bacon and eggs. Yeah, but to pick up what you just said about Delin and Sheridan, what struck me while I was watching this episode was. Just, you know, we, we've talked about this seems to be like, you know, another step in them um, becoming more of a team. Uh, we've seen a couple of steps like this on the way. This episode really brought home the fact that they are there to balance the other in the face of what they can't deal with. Um, you know, Delin shows through, has shown throughout the season and throughout the seasons and throughout this episode that she's terrified of the shadows. Yes, she's trying her best to uh, help amass... Um, uh, an army and uh, a resistance to them, but she ultimately is still very terrified of what these things can do. And it's Sheridan who comes up with yet another brilliant maneuver to beat the impossible odds and uh, succeed in destroying the ship. And then we turn right around and you've got not just an Earth Force ship, but Sheridan's old ship, the Agamemnon, uh, that has discovered this uh, alien new ship uh, and is trying to chase it down. And Sheridan can't do anything. It's not just that he he won't. He he does think about it, but ultimately he cannot even consider 
firing on this ship that um, uh, that represents a force that he's part of. So Delenn is the one who comes up with the possibility to help them escape so he doesn't have to do it. So it's just this yin-yang thing inside this episode that really brings home the fact that they are pulling together into this really, really strong team. Mm-hmm. Erica, you mentioned bacon and eggs. Yeah, bacon and eggs. I love that opening scene. I mean, oh, it's wonderful. The, sometimes the comedy stuff falls a little bit flat, but here it just seems to be as fluffy and full of life as those eggs, which since I haven't had breakfast, sounds really good right now. Um, <laughs> but just the, I mean, the the banter between the characters, even before the, the plate is delivered, and then just mm-hmm. the way that Garibaldi and Sheridan are looking at it. And, Ravenous. And just, <laughs> oh, I, it was it was it was completely on point. I thought it was a great sort of light way to start an episode, which was almost a nice little bit of misdirection because it was not a light and fluffy episode overall. We've had a few of those. This was not one of them. So it was mm-hmm. just kind of nice to start off that way and then take a little bit of a left turn to get real, real serious. Well, the last time we had a wacky breakfast scene, it was before Babylon Squared, if you'll recall. <laughs> That's yeah. <laughs> and, and this and and that was a pretty good scene, but that was uh that was Sinclair instead of Sheridan and that was uh that was slapstick compared to this. Uh I think this one I, I think this is a better scene, wouldn't you say? Here here. Yeah. Yep. I'm just like surely there's not there's got to be a planet close enough for for someone to be raising chickens if they don't feel they have room on the station for even a tiny coop of some sort. <laughs> but it's I not just, like down below is such a sterile environment that they wouldn't have a yeah. problem with that. I think I think they would have solved this problem. <laughs> oh, now I'm just imagining down below scenes with chickens running around and chicken poop. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, oh, oh, speaking of, I'm sorry, that reminded me, speaking of uh, Sinclair. Erica, I, I apologize for putting this image into your memory but imagine what it would have been like if it had been the if it had been Sinclair talking about his dad and wishing that it would rain mm, it would have been stiff <laughs> and he probably would have done some of that wide-eyed acting and no no no, know, no no not wide-eyed but I'm, I don't think he would have I don't think it, it certainly wouldn't have felt the same way I don't think it would have felt as warm Andy any final uh, highlights for your favorite bits of this episode uh, no, I'm glad we discussed breakfast because it's it's a it's a way to given that you you forget that not only is this just a beautiful plate of bacon and eggs, but everyone else at the table is eating this blue goo. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it's it's not it's not, it's not even like yogurt. Yogurt can taste good. It's this blue goo. They didn't even they didn't even make like a left hand sort of let's let's pretend that this is like astronaut food where they they work hard to make it palatable but it's of course going to be astronaut food but it's uh, it, as always uh, i think that uh, jms has is a very very uh, very very working class sort of a uh, 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 writer he wants to he wants us to see the daily daily strife of uh, of life on station he also Let's us see white-jacketed servers, servers and cooks making their way through the place, which is another mm-hmm. thing that I've always you never see you never see anybody on uh, uh, in Star Trek who is not in a uniform blouse or has just been shot as a, or killed in engineering. You never see the people <laughs> who actually have to sweep up, do you? <laughs> true. This is true. Oh, and and I love the, I love uh, again the direction of that opening scene. There is always somebody passing between the camera and the um, actors yeah. in this busy uh, mess hall. 
scene and uh, not enough to be super distracting but it just gives life to the life to the scene and that's something that sure didn't happen in Babylon Square um, final uh, final bit uh, the ending of the episode Earth is under martial law and uh, if we can put ourselves in the mindset of somebody who's just watching this for the first time and we don't know what's coming next is this a gut check is this a big cliffhanger Steven's comment was just uh, again, I will edit. Uh, stuff's getting real on Earth was just sort of like it just seemed like a natural progression for yeah. for the series. Although, I mean, maybe not natural. I guess maybe now is as good a time as any for the 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 Stephen check in. He because he he said afterwards he's like, oh, you know, I thought it was going to be Babylon Five versus the space mob. Uh, Andy, that's that's what he refers to Mr. Morden as. Um, and he said he's now this Earth thing is an added wrinkle. So, I mean, this is just sort of the plots blossoming in, in a direction that, that he didn't expect, but now makes sense. Um, he thought it was his words when it finished was, what an excellent episode. Mike Fahar is wonderful. Um, and yeah, he said that pretty much any time we see a Mike Fahar episode, it becomes his new favorite one. Um, and this one in particular, because in the past, Mike Fahar has done a lot of episodes that weren't very substantial episodes. And he sort of elevated those stories with his great skill. And in this case, it was a substantial episode story-wise. Whereas, um, you know, so adding his his great directorial touches just elevated it even even higher. So, So yeah, thumbs up all around. Okay. And Chip, to go back to your question, yeah, I didn't see the ending as a cliffhanger as much as the sort of the maybe sooner than, you know, happening given the timeline that the Nightwatch person gave in the episode. But, you know, sort of the natural reaction. I mean, Earth just did have this brand new alien ship zipping around Jupiter. Um so that they don't know anything about and it got away and it's the second like supposedly completely unknown ship um in earth space and they can conveniently the point to that as the reason that this base on ganymede just went boom yes mm-hmm. yeah so so to me it, yeah it didn't strike me so much of a cliffhanger as much as a you know big huge dramatic beat um, that's going to continue into future episodes. Yeah. Yep. Andy, the last word before we go to spoiler space is yours about messages from Earth. Uh, I would say that it's uh, not so much a cliffhanger so much as now we've been do- there, we've been doing a podcast about a musical that people are sick of hearing of. So maybe maybe I've just got <laughs> maybe I've got this mus- musical theater on my brain, but uh, you think about uh, all of these, all these two act musicals that end with Act One ends with uh, a big production number in which a lot of the characters come out and reprise their songs. Uh, only now we're at the end of the first act instead of like the introduction of these characters. Uh, kind of like how uh, uh, at the end of the first act of the Mikado, uh, we find that, that, that that's the, that's like the classic of of how those things work, where these characters come out and say, "Oh yes, well we've we've solved this problem, but now we're going to rejoice and we've fixed the problem with the Mikado, and we've got the uh, our, our two lovers are together and we've solved this, and we're not going to get this." But then that you realize that. The entire point of this episode here is to remind us of everything that's been going on for the past season to suddenly give us perspective on here is what the stakes are for each one of these characters. And then at the very, very end, the very, very last shot is going to be boom. Now, now, how does this this uh, young sort of naive security guard who has joined the Nazis 
got to deal with the fact that he's just realized what he's gotten into. How does the commander of this new rebel forces realizing now that he can't really just take off his, his Earthwatch jacket whenever he wants to fight against Earthwatch, uh, when you have the, uh, the spiritual commander uh, of an entire race that is now going to have to change his focus from, uh, from let's fight them and let's beat them back from a pace, place of, uh, of strength to let's win that let, let's basically retain our souls and refine our souls and all these things are nice but now boom out out warfare you cannot you can no longer linger in the shadows anymore you're gonna have to pick a side and fight and know what you're fighting for and that's what the last scenes of this episode are about well said well said all right next time there will be another episode of babylon 5 and it will be entitled Point of No Return. No ominous title there of any sort. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that'll be uh, that'll be uh, in two weeks if you're listening to this in real time or whenever you get around to it if you're listening to this in unreal time. Uh, more episodes of B- The Audio Guide to Babylon 5 are at b5audioguide.com. And we are on social media. If you look for us on Tumblr and Twitter, just look for B5 Audio Guide. We we ignore Facebook. Facebook does not exist in our little world. <laughs> here, here. Andy, where uh, for the people who are uh, about to take their leave of the podcast, uh, where can people find you on the online universe? Uh, you have to if you can spell my last name I H N is in Nancy A T is in Tom K O. You can find me on Twitter because uh, that's my username or anatco.com, That's my blog uh, or check out my stuff uh, about technology on the Chicago Sun Times site. Excellent. All right, everybody, strap yourselves in. We're about to go into a jump gate, and we will emerge on the other side, not in hyperspace, but in spoiler space. And we're back. It's time to squee. Andy, oh you squee. call you call the first Star Wars movies the Holy Trilogy. Is it fair to call uh, Messages from Earth part one of Babylon 5's Holy Trilogy? Uh, and if you say it's not, I will cut you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll 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 agree. I, I don't think there. You, you need more than three episodes, though. I don't know what's what's the what's the, a double trilogy. I think let's say <laughs> because I think we I think we'd all pick out six episodes that are the big wham episodes and the ones that really not just changed uh, changed all our attitudes about what these characters are doing, but also what they're facing, and really just got us hooked for the next uh, next eight to twenty episodes. I would certainly mm-hmm. say this this feels like the the climax in the the classic story building drama where you've got the rising action and the climax and then the falling action. This has always felt like a climax point to me for Babylon 5 because at, by the end of Severed Dreams everything has changed. We have Earth um we have Babylon 5 completely separated and independent from Earth along with all the other outer um colonies. We've got Earth openly um fighting and uh, attacking its citizens um, as they attack Mars. Uh, And then, of course, um, this steps up um, problems because Babylon 5 is now taking on two uh, fights, fighting Earth Force and fighting the Shadows. And it's not clear yet that that they're really kind of fighting the same same group when they do that. Um, So, yeah, but between... Between the plot 
imp- the importance to the twist and the plot of this and some of the absolutely incredible acting we're going to get. Severed Dreams, we're going to have wonderful F- SFX shots with bat- with the battles and so forth. So, you know, it's the cream of the crop for me. <laughs> Erica, when you when you were getting into this series, when you when you got to this point, were you on board? Yes, I think. See, it, as as always, my memory for this this part of it is fuzzy. And I did check, as I mentioned, one ep- or two episodes ago. I did check in with my friend Jeff, who was was with me when we were discovering the show, and he actually said that the first episode that he really remembers is Severed Dreams. So that makes me think that maybe we weren't fully one hundred percent on board watching every bit of every episode at this point but i suspect that maybe we were and he's just remembering several dreams because it's you know it's like wham with three exclamation points whereas uh here we were just sort of still kind of building up to it i mean yes i feel like this episode it feels like it's a big deal but i don't think it feels like as big a deal as we now know it is if you're watching it the first time it's just like oh some interesting things happen i'd agree with that it's you know Yes, it's a turning point, but if you're watching it for the first time, you don't know it's a turning point. So that's why I was kind of trying to be careful in the non-spoiler section to, to couch my terms that way. And mm-hmm. and the first time we watched it, or the first time we were discovering this, I think this was still in the phase where the 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 point of the night was to watch Deep Space Nine, and we just happened to catch parts of Babylon 5. I don't think it was until Severed Dreams that it completely flipped, and it was Babylon 5 night, and sometimes we would watch Deep Space Nine. But, you know, it's it's all there in this episode. I mean, this is the first time that the B-5 staff actually take military action against their own government. I mean... Garibaldi and Ivanova are shocked, but, you know, yeah, they're going to take the White Star and they're going to attack an Earth installation. I mean, you, you can you can say that, you know, they're just they're targeting the shadow ship. And they're going to try to kill, kill it on the ground, but you're going to war against your own people. And you could yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that Susan does open up to Marcus the way she does. I think in more ordinary times, she wouldn't. She, yes, she's a blunt person, but she doesn't actively go around hurting people's feelings. So, you know, I think that's part of her stress is that she has just seen Sheridan and their group take this step. Um, and therefore, she lashes out um, because Marcus's actions are, the, are what what brought it about. Yeah. And I don't think this is going to war with with their own people. Yes, there, there's there's one action. They're, they're choosing to do one thing to, you know, to try to help the, the greater good. But this is not I mean, when you say going to war, that's 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 a big deal. That's a campaign. That's that's the start of something big. This does not have it, any hallmarks of necessarily being the start of something big, which I think is a good thing, because then you still get yeah. the, the wham of the episodes that come after this. If they were any more blatant about it, it would be a lot less exciting to watch the next two episodes, I think. Yeah, but I think it still feels that way to a military mindset. You know, maybe not to us civilians, (laughs) but I think for somebody who has, you know, spent their adult life in the military serving Earth Force, it's going to feel like that, I think. Yeah. Which I think was sold by the actors, and I think that that was mm-hmm. that was great. You know, Garibaldi and Ivanova, where they were gobsmacked and they were just shocked at this yeah. at this very idea. But you know, n- nobody else really seemed to be all that like you know, well, that's not such a big deal. <laughs> and that's and that's kind of how it came off to to me and to Stephen. So messages yeah. from Earth. It's really really significant, but it's more significant in retrospect because uh, very much so because yeah that that's that's what y'all are saying. Mm-hmm. I think so. Let's, yep. let's, let's remove a lot of Babylon 5. 
Like you really do need to, you really do need perspective in order to figure out what it is you saw a year ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When these episodes came out, not long after that, I took my recordings of the episodes and I smushed them all up in EP format on a VHS tape. And I started evangelizing Babylon 5 because I thought that these three episodes together were, as I said, you know, just just. I stole Andy's phrase, you know, holy trilogy. I remember giving the giving the episodes to one of uh, my professors in grad school. And when he watched it, he thought that Messages from Earth was kind of hokey. And then he was intrigued by Point of No Return. And then he was committed on sever- Severed Dreams. Now, I don't see Messages from Earth as hokey at all, but... Is that because I had already seen like uh, two and a half seasons of Babylon 5 leading up to it? Yeah, I think yeah. it is because these, you know, if you don't know these characters, then then, yeah, like, you know, the scene that's my favorite scene of Captain Sheridan talking about his dad in the rain. Yeah, that's going to come off as super hokey if you're just seeing it for the first time and don't know anything about these characters. I, I think that's a fair assessment. Plus a lot. It, 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 that's absolutely right. If you haven't seen, if this if this comes out of the blue, this is exactly the sort of really bad writing that uh, a bad writer would come up with to make sure that we really we don't miss a single point of anything that's happening right now. But if this is the this really does in context feel like the natural evolution of what's been happening all season. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the season of of, of, of Zach's uh, role in this in this episode, yeah. where. It's 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 very very direct to have you know I just I just don't know if I've if I've if I've gotten in over my head here and I shouldn't be what what are these people are they now they're trying to take over the government I'm not sure about that if yeah out of context it, out of context, it makes no it looks sense like, exactly it's yeah. it's a direct to DVD two hour space epic movie <laughs> move. yeah if you haven't had the chance to see the progression and the buildup of all of these different characters arriving at this point, then, yeah, as you said, it, um, it, it it's going to feel um, overplayed out of context. Yeah. yeah. What we're, what we're seeing are people who have been very, very clever and very, very smart to infiltrate. And they don't have to have that big speech about, we're going to start rounding up the media and we're going to start rounding up people in the government that aren't, aren't on our side. It starts off with, all you have to do is come to a couple of meetings and wear this band and we'll give you a little bit of extra pay. Just because, you know, hey, I don't have to tell you, look at all the wars that have been breaking out over the past couple of years for absolutely no reason. We just want to be ready just in case. Mm-hmm. That's one of the uh, things that I love the most about Babylon 5 is that the way everything is building, the shadow appearance, uh, the conflict between the Narn and Centauri, you know, all of the tensions that have been building through the last two and a half years of the show, they're all sort of coming home to roost, and the evil EarthGov uh, forces uh, from uh, President Clark on down are taking advantage of all of this heroic stuff and drama that uh, our main characters have been involved in. And I love how it all just sort of builds. It's building in the background that all of these great things, as uh, Sheridan says, you know, we did something good here and we're being blamed for it. Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. It's getting as you as you're making the as you're making your universe better, it, things are getting worse for you. And I, I love the way that this is all structured. Uh, only a showrunner with a firm hand 
uh, on on a story arc can do that, and I think that that's another example of why this season is, in many ways, the best season of Babylon Five because JMS is writing the season not because he has to, not because of external factors, but because he wants to to ensure that all the beats drop at exactly the right point. You know, I think this season, certainly from here on in kind of, uh, you know, the line that we get, uh, I think it's Garibaldi who says no good deed goes unpunished. I feel like that's kind of a good tagline for this season because (laughs) they keep doing their best and it just keeps getting thrown right back in their face. Just, you know, Clark and the Shadows and Mr. Space Mob, they're all just like they manage to twist everything and it just it just sucks. But boy, isn't it good drama. But it's isn't that it's an indicator of one of the running themes throughout every single season. People who want to fight the good fight, but they don't understand what the real battle is all about. That mm-hmm. you would think that a season from now they would be savvy enough to realize that here is what happens if we destroy if we if even if we anonymously destroy this thing on this base. It's not about this government trying to defend itself against a certain threat or being paranoid. It's because they are going to look for an excuse to do what they want to do, and we are going to be handing them exactly that excuse. You could almost say that every single one of these of, of these races, their leaders, uh, even the people that we're supposed to like don't understand the battle that they're really fighting. And that's why almost all of them destroy themselves in the process. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, call out something that uh, Stephen noticed and that we discussed in the pre-spoiler section. It's, you know, our sort of side-eyeing Delin over information that uh, she had <laughs> that she didn't bring up at the time. Was I a little obvious when I uh, when I observed that it was kind of shocking <laughs> that Delin would hi- hide information from Sheridan? Do I need to excise that remark from uh, pre-spoiler? <laughs> No, actually, I was very impressed with how elegantly you slid that in there. Nobody's going to notice anything if they're watching for the first time. But all of the people who have seen it before are going to be snickering behind their coffee mugs. Bravo, Chip. Bravo. (laughs) Because, yeah, she's, yeah. (laughs) She knows that Anna Sheridan is quite possibly alive. And quite (laughs) possibly got dumped in one of those shadow uh, vessels herself, you know. Delin's working with the Vorlons. Delin is is a Mimbari who never tells you the whole truth, and uh, that's that's going to come to bite him in terms of trust. Uh, but uh, otherwise, you know, this is the episode in which the good ship Sheridan and Delin truly set sail. Am I right? Is it is it is it obvious at this? It's point a major that it's step a reli- that it's a romance arc. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, her body yeah. language, if nothing else, the way that she sort of turns onto her side and puts her head up on her, you know, hand. I mean, maybe for Minbari, that's not the same. But boy, looking at it from a human standpoint, that was, I am interested. I am mm-hmm. very interested in your story. And, and then, you know, reaching out to grab his hand. Exactly. Uh, yeah, this is this is the ship setting sail for sure. Well, and just and the way even that body language, you know, they start by like, you know, sort of holding each other's wrists. That feels like sort of a military partnership mm-hmm. ceremonial kind of we're in this together thing. And then they slide and then they take each other's hands. So I think that's a hugely telling little uh, bit of codification that, yes, uh, we are we are headed for we are headed for a major romance. And the set design in this in that scene is so canny because because they're Mm -hmm. they're lying at opposite angles. There's no there is unless they're both secret contortionists. 
There's no sexual subtext to this whatsoever. It is a moment of uh, pure emotional bonding. And I think that that is really JMS described himself online as you know being sort of sort of old fashioned in his sort of tastes for how he did romantic arcs and, uh, and and things like that. It's very very careful, but by this point, it Stephen I'm sure could see it even from space that this is a mm-hmm. romance plot. Oh yeah, absolutely. He, you know, he could tell it. You know, we were talking about it. I try not to go too in depth afterwards, but I was explaining why that's one of my favorite favorite scenes. And I was just saying that it is so. It's not schmaltzy. It is not a schmaltzy scene. There's no swelling music to tell you you're supposed to be feeling anything, and they're not. You know, there's not huge declarations of anything. It is just quiet and p- intensely personal and probably one of the most romantic scenes I've ever seen on television ever without without trying to be schmaltzy is the word I keep coming back to because it's not that it's not schmoopy it's just it's just sweet and I love it so Andy would you have been more okay with this scene if we hadn't had more scenes like this previously in the season was this sort of the one one too many point that's that's all again. Your 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 radar gets sort of fine tuned to something. It's it's sort it's sort of like that when your kid tells the same cute but bad joke like once too many <laughs> times. We're like you su- you suddenly go from ha 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 to okay, Josh, enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like that. although now Chip Chip Chip's taking me down this really bad tangent. I'm trying to figure out how the Mimbari have sex on those beds. <laughs> they probably well, do it someplace else in a very ritualized do. style. Also, you know, we've never we've never seen one of those those people completely naked, so you never know. Yeah, there's that. Yeah. Yes, could, That's could true. be a con- could, could biology be like, like, is like, all like yes. wireless charging or like Bluetooth. You know, it I, need to, <laughs> an, air, they can, an air gap of uh, as much as one yard is good enough. I only have two <laughs> words: woo who. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so I like that uh, we got our evil Nightwatch supervisor guy uh, appearing in this episode before uh, Point of No Return coming up. I I think that's good setup and continuity. He's the guy I've been calling Blondie McArian. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely good to have him as sort of the face of, of Nightwatch as they are about to be taken down and taken down hard. And oh, I can't wait. Yeah. And what a smarmy face it is. Right. It, it makes it kind of jarring, though. After the Holy Trilogy, uh, we will have the episode where uh, they get their new uniforms and Delin is captured by other Nightwatch who didn't get uh, kicked off the station. And none of those Nightwatch look anything like these Nightwatch. These are just uh, not, just thugs. You know, they're they're practically they're they're practically Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome bad guys. Uh, <laughs> I, I I prefer this kind of Night Watch just from a dramatic mm-hmm. purpose. Yeah, I, I kind of I kind of think he threw away something interesting there, where you want to you want to see people that you're familiar with, people that you probably would say hello to and would you know, and and smiling nods if you pass by them uh, on your on your morning walk. It's easy to say, okay, this guy looks like muscle. They look like a, a trained Navy SEAL, male or female. It's not as though they got in different people to be the Night Watch. They got in through finding people who were vulnerable or just naive and then slowly working on them until you you can trick them into thinking, well, you know, Captain Sheridan, he's actually having a relationship with an alien. 
God, what the hell is that all about? Maybe, maybe they got, maybe they they got a point there about aliens trying to infiltrate our society. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, after after this trilogy, the Night Watch kind of becomes the other instead of the people who could be us, um, and and it makes it it makes it a little too on the nose for my taste. Mm-hmm. The trust between Garibaldi and Jakar that's sort of building in this scene, this will be paid off at the end of the next episode when uh, the security forces are going to be narnified. What my favorite that's that's I, I, I that's that's a punch the air moment when Jakar marches in with his people and pounds his chest. We're your security now. I love that. Yep. So uh, so again, um, things things being set up in this episode that will be paid up next time. Um, it's beautiful. Actually, uh, we should have mentioned it in spoiler space uh, in Exogenesis. Um, uh, they were talking about the package. For, Marcus was talking in his meetings about the packages, the package from Mars and Ranger One's instructions. You know that that oh, pays right. off in this episode. Yeah. I love this season. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, and that may be a little of it. it, it some of our payoffs take a long time to, to, to come through, through. We've got a tight little cohort here, if you include exogenesis and a couple of other things. That, but this season, they're paying off things very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's unusual um, in, you know, even though Babylon 5 was, was one of, it feels like it's one of the first arcish um, shows, science fiction or action shows. Um, even then it feels like, um, you know, that in a normal pacing, the breaking off and becoming independent from Earth would have been a season cliffhanger instead of 10 episodes in at the end of Severed Dreams. So, you know, the fact that that JMS is bringing that to the forefront so quickly just sort of makes you feel like, oh, my gosh, what else is in store? (laughs) Yeah, it really intensifies the pace. The fact that we were having things paid off over the course of, you know, many episodes or a whole season, and now we're getting it a few episodes later or the very next episode, I think just adds to the the increased tension going forward towards this point of no return. Wah-uh. Yeah. He's, also, he, he's also very wise to understand that we, can, we I had a good time for the first two seasons planting a seed and then walking away for it, from it for eight episodes. I can't get there. there that was fun. <laughs> and I'm sure the viewers enjoyed the building tension. At some point, though, things have start to have to start to happen, and this is the of course the time where things have to start to happen. I wonder if he was also now in the mind. I can't believe that we got renewed twice already. I got. We may not be renewed again. Let's make sure that let's make sure that if we get canceled at the end of this season, we can say that big things have happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although if mm-hmm. uh, they had been canceled at the end of this season, you know. We we got severed dreams and that was awesome, but we would have ended with Sheridan falling at Zaha Doom and that would have fade to black. That's it. That's Ugh. the end of everything. Uh, you know, the Blake Seven finale was 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 one thing, but this would have left so many things <laughs> left hanging that I think uh, I, I I think suicide hotlines would have been lighting up. I, I think that in, if that had happened in this day and age, we would all have absolutely no doubt that he was saying. I know that we've been canceled by this this network, but I I have to create a, a, a cliffhanger so that everybody absolutely will crowdfund a, at least a two hour mm-hmm. movie from this. <laughs> uh, we're, we're actually, just... it, it, I, uh, I haven't seen it, but uh, was the like the season finale of Farscape? Perhaps is probably along those same lines, wouldn't you say? 
Yeah, because uh, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and I can't spoil. I, I guess I shouldn't spoil it for people who haven't seen who who haven't seen Farscape. But the series finale for Farscape ended in a dire cliffhanger, and I remember friends who were upset to put it mildly that uh the characters were left in that state and it wasn't until the peacekeeper wars uh movie uh resolved that uh which, which was not a guaranteed thing that would have happened hmm. tangent uh when uh sheridan next sees the agamemnon he'll be he won't be at, at risk of shooting it he'll be shocked that it's a, there but they're coming to join up and that's a that's that's a nice thing um so mm-hmm. so that's nice any other uh any other spoilery thoughts about message from messages from earth and how it sets up the rest of this holy trilogy and the rest of uh, the rest of babylon 5 frankly well just a couple of lines a little things leaped out at me um how marcus slyly puts susan at the heart of his chart so suddenly making it clear, like, I, I'm interested in you. Uh-huh. Um, and also uh, Delenn's mantra telling Sheridan, I will catch you if you fall. Um, you know, later on uh, when he is falling at Zaha Doom, you know, it, he thinks of her and her thoughts are one of the things that help him get through that. Good thought, Erica. Yep. Um, no, I just I just really want to watch the next couple episodes, that's all. <laughs> yeah, are you and Stephen going to have to accelerate your watching on this one, or is he content to keep going because he doesn't know how big it's going to get? That, the latter. There, there's there's no hint from him that he think like, there's he has no idea what is coming in the next two episodes. There was there was no hint of that whatsoever. So, so yeah, we'll just be waiting wow. until uh, next time we record. Oh, man. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I was thinking of... of uh, Every, all the payoffs from dust to dust in this episode. We get to see that, no, this is not just a throwaway sort of thing but that's not going to influence Jakar going forward, that this has been a real transformative uh, event for him that's changed his brain in really wonderful ways. Uh, I have to say that this is this is the super spoiler end of, uh, end of the podcast. So we can talk about how this pays off in the very long run, can't we? True. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So there was there were a, a couple of things uh, that, that occurred to me after uh, uh, watching the show again. Number one, of course, we get to the point where uh, Jakar is now lending the book of Jak- what's going to be the book of Jakar to to Garibaldi and returns it with like coffee stains on it. And I even at the time when we're seeing these episodes, I'm thinking that my God, 500 years after this, every single Jakar uh, 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 religion uh, cleric is going to have to copy down every one of those coffee stains, <laughs> and the theologians are going to be debating <laughs> eternally why there is a ring on this page and why there's only a dot on this other page and why is the dot on this specific word and there's going to be different factions of the religion based on garibaldi's inability to respect the property of others but that's 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 the <laughs> that is stuff. andy that is possibly the most delightful babylon 5 headcanon that i have ever heard <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll send you my fanfic all, all about it it's, <laughs> it's it's about a poor farm girl who's been under the religious thumb of her of her, of her family and then, then he then he finds the blog of a one Mikhail Garibaldi, who is known as one of the minor prophets. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just saw the uh, I just saw the apostrophe in Garibaldi's name, and that just broke me. 
<laughs> but there, there's a there's a bigger thing though. Like okay, later on, it's uh, I kind of wish that 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 scene had ended with uh, without the shot of uh, of the Vorlon, you know. Uh, like ending uh, sort of silently just sort of exiting the scene because later on we find out that uh, both the shadows and the Vorlons are both there. There's, there's no good guys or bad guys. They're both, they both feel as though there is their duty to manipulate uh, this generation of, uh, of life forms towards their own philosophies. And I really, uh, I, I feel as though Jakar found his awakening legitimately but that always put a little bit of a curse on it that maybe there was part of it where it was he was being in he was being manipulated into having this sort of vision or maybe even he was having the specific vision at the stage management of some sort some sort of outside force it mm -hmm. would it was it was a lot stronger before that last shot of that scene when it felt like no he was just having his he was he was under the under the control of this of, of this chemical that's just basically sending his brain into all kinds of different tangents, but this is where his brain decided to lead him to this, not to uh, spiraling out fury, but to this idea of, I'm going to be visited upon by the greatest religious figure, spiritual leader of our people, and he's going to set me straight. And in him setting me straight, it's actually me setting me straight. So it's, it's not like it ruined it for me, but it was one of those things where I think that if 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 he if he had had another year to work on this script and he was seeing these five this five year arc com completely completed and he was editing now this uh, this eight hundred hour movie that he was making I think he might have reconsidered doing that. You know, I I agree with you entirely from an emotional standpoint. I as as a viewer who loves Dakar and loves the way that he goes from here, I want to think that he did have an, an a legitimate you know spiritual transformation. But at the same time, the idea that it was that it was a, a Vorlon, that it was Kosh that actually like dipped into his brain and and manipulated this whole thing to start with is it's it's kind of one of those delightful shades of gray things that Babylon Five really excels in. You don't have have complete light you don't have complete dark you have every every character looking at things from their own their own specific perspective and in this case you you do have the vorlons manipulating jakar to this point and and yet he becomes a wonderful spiritual leader and maybe he was manipulated into it but does that negate the, the all of the good that he does and it's, it's i find myself emotionally flipping backwards and forwards every time i think about that little wrinkle of it because i i can't land on whether i'm happy with it whether i'm upset with it or whether i'm just kind of amazed that that's that's one more one more shade of gray added into this amazing tapestry yeah i think i come slightly on the side of um, that ultimately it's a good thing, but that's partly because my overall feeling is that Kosh is, because he is the one interacting day to day with all of these other races compared to the rest of his people, uh, mainly because of the contrast of how Olkesh behaves once he arrives to take Kosh's place, that, you know, Kosh was doing this not just because he was supposed to, but because he wants to help, because he wants to, you know, care... Yes, he wants to spread the philosophy, but he also cares about these characters, about these other um, people that he's interacting with. So, yeah, 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 he's nudging Jakar in the right direction, and he hopes that the that the the match he has thrown into this will take uh, Jakar in the correct direction that they want them to go. But he also wants to help Jakar and help get him um, started on this path. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a good point, particularly because when we see uh, Kosh die and he reaches out to Sheridan, he mm-hmm. really he he finally admits that you know what I'm uh, we, I was wrong the way that uh, I I, sh- I shouldn't have done things th- things the way that I did, uh, right. and that even though my heart was in the right place, and yes, that that's a really good note. Y'all, we've been talking about messages from Earth for an hour and a half. <laughs> well, whew. there's a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. It's a, I love this episode so much. <laughs> and, 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 it make, and it makes me want to watch the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. And the, so, mm-hmm. uh, but I think, we need to, I, I think we need to stick a pin in this one. Uh, any final thoughts before we go? Bring on the next one. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Andy, thanks so much for spending so much of your time with us talking about this episode of Babylon 5. Again, thanks for bringing me back on. It's a, it's Babylon Five is not the is not a show that I live every single day. And but boy, when you remind me of how much I loved it, that's that's two days of my life gone. <laughs> both, <laughs> both finding old DVDs and buying episodes on Amazon. <gasps> oh, well, you're welcome. <laughs> happy, happy to, uh, happy to uh, trigger your nostalgia there, sir. Uh, Erica. Point of no return is yours for next for next time. Looking forward mm-hmm. to that one, and then uh, in our rotation, Shannon right gets now. severed dreams. Darn her! Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that'll be that'll be uh, ne- that'll be next time on the audio guide to Babylon Five. Uh, please jump in on the spoiler discussion threads over at b5audioguide.com. I think we'll have just a little bit to talk about in this episode. <laughs> Uh, until next time and until point of no return in episode 53, this is Chip and Durham, Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham. And you have been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5.